book of Lamentations, if you'll turn there. And again, we have a lengthy passage before us to read here in Lamentations as we continue our study in Jeremiah and have interrupted it with this series on Lamentations uh, after the fall of Jerusalem, placing it there as a response to that chapter. We'll be heading back to Jeremiah two weeks from today if we're still on the planet. Uh, and that's the schedule that I have before me. So we'll be finishing up Lamentations next week, Lord willing. I invite you to turn to Lamentations chapter 3. We will begin reading in verse 34. We will read all the way to chapter 4, verse 20. And so almost all of chapter 4, the balance of chapter 3, we'll be reading together. And please follow along in your scriptures. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, um, as is my custom. God's word declares in Lamentations 3:34 To crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the most high or subvert a man in his cause the Lord does not approve Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it Is it not from the mouth of the most high that woe and well-being proceed should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an off-scouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption. Till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry of help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, Do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my sin, for my soul, I'm sorry. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me, the lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them in your anger. Pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold, the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst, 
The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones and has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion, and it has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth and all inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just, they wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, Go away, unclean. Go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations says, they, are no, they shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests nor favor the elders. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. They tracked our steps, that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Our study this morning continues in Lamentations. And I hope that after last week you'll see that while the book is entitled Lamentations, that it doesn't have despair as its foundation. Most of the time that we end up weeping in the nature that Jeremiah describes here is because we believe there's no hope. And that is not the root of the weeping that is described here. It is because we believe that there's been some unfairness uh, perpetrated against us, but that is not the root of the crying and weeping that Jeremiah discloses here. Rather, it is the foundation of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness makes us weep. It ought to. For his faithfulness, and we're going to try to define that a little bit better this morning, uh, perhaps than what we typically think of when we sing, Great is thy faithfulness, and it's even wrapped up in the words there a little bit. Uh, the faithfulness of God does not preclude the need to cry and weep out. Uh, the faithfulness of God is tied, as all of his attributes, to his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. And so the weeping of Jeremiah here is over the necessity, the fairness of the 
horrors that he has witnessed and that the people of Israel have endured now at the hand of God, both northern and southern, both Israel in the north and Judah in the south, because of their sin. And it is not God's unfaithfulness or things that aren't going the way we want them to that solicited this. It is men's faithlessness. It is the unrighteous of men and the fact, the the. The truth that they are receiving only what they have deserved. And that has brought forth the great weeping and lamenting. And so the foundation of lamentations is a broken and heart, a contrite spirit, as the psalmist describes. And this is the foundation of this kind of weeping. This is not poor me, poor us, although there are certainly very clear and very vivid descriptions of all that they have endured, but scattered throughout the book of Lamentations and centered here in the middle of chapter 3, we find two truths. Number one is that God is righteous and faithful, and number two, that we are not, that we are sinful. And a broken heart and a contrite spirit um, which descri- is described um, in the New Testament um, as godly sorrow and repentance. David describes it when he is caught in his sin as that I come to you with a, bro- with, a, with a broken heart, broken over my sin, and so I weep over it. And that sin that he had committed in that passage, of course, was against um, Bathsheba and, and uh, Uriah the Hittite of immorality and murder, and then the cover-up. But he was broken in his heart, and he wept before God and mourned to the point that when his child died, no one even wanted to go tell him because he was already in such a state. This is a broken heart. And yes, it produces lamentation, but it's not broken over bad things happening, but over the bad we have done. And when we compare ourselves and really contrast ourselves to the righteousness of God. And he says, also I have a contrite spirit. That is that I want to fix this. I want to repair this. I want to do differently. Contrition is about making right. And that is in Romans, godly sorrow, that brokenheartedness brings repentance, which is I want to go a different direction. I want to move in a different way. And so we're going to see that evident in our passage here before us in Lamentations. Um, And unfortunately, while Jeremiah is prepared to do that himself, we find that it's not very broadly held among his people. Even at this stage where they have already endured so much that we're going to find them failing um, to repent even though they are broken in body and as a people, nationally, we don't find them broken-hearted. And that is the danger. Because they had so many other things they trusted in and still trusted in those things, even when there was, all hope was lost, they did not trust in the Lord, but in themselves and the ways of men, as we're going to see. And so the calling the foundation for lamentations um, is not just we weep when bad things happen or someone dies or horrific scenes come before our eyes, but rather we weep over our sinfulness and what it demands of God in his justice to punish. And this 
we need to discover more fully an understanding of what it means for God to be faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. We saw last week in Jeremiah 3, verse uh, 23. And we're going to find it, how that outworks among sinners uh, in our passage before us today. Before we go into that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for an opportunity to consider your truth and then to consider our waves in the light of it. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to be honest, to know your word, and then to apply it to our lives and to allow it to break us. And not just to break us, but to bring us to contrition. And so we pray for your help in this, for this is well beyond this servant's capacity to cause this. It is a divine activity. So we pray for your conviction and your work and your strengthening in us and that we might be responsive to it with fullness of understanding of who you are and what you demand of us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we wrapped up last week looking at the idea of what God wants to do versus what God must do. Of what God is willing, he's not willing that these things happen, but they are necessary because he is faithful. And when we think of faithfulness, we usually think of all the good things. And in fact, when you sing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, in your hymn book, which we sang last week, we realize, oh, it's all the good things that God gives us. And yes, God is wondrous in his love for us, in his grace, his mercy toward us, in the benefits that we have received to us. His benevolence towards us is without limit, certainly. Um, But if that's the extent of what we understand of the faithfulness of God, you have a skewed view of who God is for his faithfulness here. Notice where this description of great is thy faithfulness is founded. It is founded in the midst of his punishment, of his, of his judgment on his people and their sin. And uh, we don't often think of that, well, that's God being faithful, but it is. You see, in the covenant agreement between God and Israel, there was a deal struck. That's what a covenant agreement is. And so it was, if you obey and you serve me, there will be incredible joys waiting for you. You will have a land, you'll have a harvest, you'll have victory over your enemies, you'll have all of this abundance. Not just physically and materially, but spiritually you'll have this great abundance. But there's also in the agreement the other side. But if you go after other gods, if you sin, I will be equally faithful to punish you for that. And do not think that God in that role of judge and executioner is less faithful. He is being faithful. And it is exactly his faithfulness that makes him have to do that, that he doesn't want to do. He did not sit down and say, I can't wait till this day when I get to lay it on him. Oh, no. He wasn't willing and he's not willing today that he should perish. He doesn't want any to perish. But he must because he is faithful 
allow those who reject his son Jesus Christ to, in fact, perish. And that is the facet of faithfulness that we neglect, that we don't sing about, that we don't meditate on, is that God is the faithful one. And so he must do right. That is part of being faithful. And we're going to see how that exercises itself here in the verses to come. But first we want to, again, see this balance. And we're going to keep coming back to this. Yes, he's both, and he's faithful in it all. So let's look at what is fair. Verse 34, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth. And again, look at who he's, who he's talking about, the prisoners of the earth. To turn aside justice due to a man um, before the face of the Most High or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. And so God does understand fairness. <laughs> he doesn't approve of unfair judgment. And the prisoner here is the one that is, that is under affliction. And again, um, if you want to know who we're talking about. We're talking about the prophet of God who was imprisoned for doing the work of God. God doesn't approve of that wrong imprisonment and of the abuse of prisoners. Um, and so when we look in times past, not only biblical era, but since then, where the saints have been imprisoned and beaten, tortured for their faith, and we look at that and we have to reflect upon that God didn't approve of that. That was the working of men, and it will demand retribution. God will take care of that. So the question goes, who was perpetrating these acts that God didn't approve of? In Jerusalem, the perpetrators was the king, the priests, the false prophets, the princes, the people. They were the one perpetrating these things that God did not approve of. And so God understands fairness. He understands that. And so he looks upon men. He says, you already have this man imprisoned, and now you're going to add insult to injury and seek to crush them. And we all have a sense of that, that that is wrong. Even in our worldly literature, we, we recognize that as being just, just wrong. In the Count of Monte Cristo, right? He gets sent off unjustly. And then to add insult to injury, he gets beaten regularly. It's bad enough he had to go to prison his whole life taken away from him, but then he has to be beaten in there, a man who did nothing but his duty. And we recognize that that is wrong. And then the wrong is multiplied. And that's what this is talking about. And so God, the Lord doesn't approve of this, and so do not put this at his doorstep, that he is the causal agent in that. He goes on, though, to help us understand. First, God does understand justice and what is fair. Verse 37, following though we have more of an understanding of this faithfulness of God. Is it not from the mouth? I'm sorry, verse 37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? 
Those, this is a description of rebellion. Who's committing rebellion? God understands rebellion. You speak, you make things pass, but the Lord didn't command you to do those things. And we know some of the hideous things that Israel was doing in her midst that God did not command. Verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? And, and this is described a little bit differently in the Septuagint um, where it, it doesn't make it a question. It makes it declare that, that you know, this isn't the way of the Lord to be unjust. And so both are true to an extent. One describes that, yes, God is faithful when he uh, brings the goodness to those who are obedient, and he is also faithful when he brings woe to those who deserve it. But also it is not God to just whimsically do that. It's not that today he wills woe and today he wills good. Oh, no. He is faithful And that faithfulness is built upon his covenantal agreement with us. That we have this foundation. And God will be faithful to that. If we violate it, he'll be just as faithful to judge as when we keep it and he is faithful to bless. Do not disassociate God's faithfulness from either side of that covenant agreement. And so now, when you begin to grasp God a little bit, we come to a question, or really a declaration, verse 39. Um, Do you have the right to complain? (laughs) And the complaint people are having are against God. How could God let this happen to us? A complaint we hear frequently. We say frequently. How could God? And now we come to this, why should a living man complain for the punishment of his sins? God is faithful. So great is he in his faithfulness that he must punish sins. How dare we complain? How dare we complain when we read passages about people in eternal fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the worm never dies. And yes, it kind of goes against our whole God is love thing because that's all we heard for so long that we don't feel comfortable with that. But the fact is, is that the presence of that lake of fire is the faithfulness of God. They rejected his son. How can you complain that there's a place of punishment for those that reject Jesus Christ? He died for them. He left heaven's glory. He endured all of this world yet without sin He was separated from the Father in his anguish. He he descended into Hades. He took captivity captive. He did all of this and they rejected him. How dare we have a complaint against God for the existence of a place of punishment? It is part of his faithfulness. He must have it or he is no longer faithful. And if he isn't faithful to one half of the equation, you cannot trust him to be faithful to the other half. If there is no place of torment, there is no place of blessing. Both require and demand his faithfulness. If you destroy it in one place, you can't claim it in the other. And so Jeremiah paints this off, and and what is the conclusion now? You can't have, you shouldn't be complaining. Now that you understand who God is and who you are, that God's has been watching and he sees the 
fairness, and he knows that there's necessity for judgment. And so, how do we respond? And in the midst of the weeping of lamentation is verse 40 that calls us to something. It says, let us search out and examine our ways. He has taken some time to help you discover God's ways. Right? Backing way up to last week's message, the um, Verse 22 and following, we have had this lengthy, for, for Lamentations, for five-chapter book, uh, this lengthy description to help us understand God's ways. And you cannot bring your complaint against him. So who are you supposed to be examining? You're not here to judge God. How foolish to judge the judge. Who do you think you are? Oh, no. The wise one will come having under, oh man, God is the judge. He is faithful. He's going to keep both sides of the covenant, both the blessings and the curses. He's going to keep them all. And so I should search out and examine my ways. Now that I have a handle on the justice of God, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, yes, and his mercies, and his compassions, they're also spoken of in this passage. We started that off in verse 22. We have a very balanced Lord. Isn't that great? I feel sorry for those religions that basically just have an angry God. And you're just afraid of him, and you just want nothing to do with him. You want to help avoid him. And that is the Muslim God. I hate to tell you that, but that, they, their idea of paradise is a place where he isn't, where they can behave as they will. And if they've done some violent, horrendous act, they believe that they will have that in addition of that plus 70 virgins. Um, they want to avoid him. They're afraid of him. We have a God that is compassionate, but that doesn't mean that he lacks the capacity of judgment. So we have a very balanced God. And so the, the, instead of looking and trying to formulate a God to permit us to live the life we want, it is time that we begin to search out and examine our ways and then look at verse 40. You're going to examine your ways and turn back to the Lord. That is repentance. Turn back to God. Look at verse 41. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We're going to lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven with these words. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. And why should you? And the verbiage here is that we have continued to transgress and rebel. It is still in us to do the unfair thing. It is still in us to declare we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We leave God out of the equation at all. And that's why James said, don't do that. Make sure, you know, yes is yes and no is no. You don't have to have vows next to it. Make sure you don't say, I'm going to do this and that. Make sure you recognize that God willing, I'm going to do this and that. Put yourself under his sovereignty. Don't rebel against him. And that's what's being described here. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, the Lord didn't command you to do that, so why are you doing it? And so here in their rebellion, here in their trespass, breaking the covenant, he, 
they're supposed to be examining themselves, repenting, having a broken heart. But we find at the end of verse 22, God hasn't pardoned them. What's the deal? It sounds like they, but notice, this isn't what they did, this is what they should have been doing. They should have searched their ways. They should have turned back to the Lord. They should have lifted up their hearts and hands to God in heaven. They should have declared and confessed their transgression and their rebellion. Um, But the fact that God hasn't pardoned tells us something. Look at verse 43. He still is holding out. You have covered yourself with anger, pursued us. You have slain him, not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an offspring, offscouring and refuse in the midst of our of the peoples, you may say, well, what? why is God still pouring it out when it seems that we have the solution there? Here is the fact. The fact is while the solution was at hand, they did not lay hold of it. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, let's go to the end of our reading, towards the end of the reading. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 17. Let's see what was really going on. Even after Jerusalem's fall, even after all the things they witnessed that are described here, we studied some of the degradation and the, and the horrors of that site there in Jerusalem. We've looked at some of that. We're going to touch on a couple of things in there. But I want you to look at verse 17. Still, our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. Why did God not hear their prayers? That is a very powerful description, by the way, of broken fellowship. God making a cloud that your prayers can't get through. Why? And you thought God listened to every prayer. He does not. And that's why we find in the New Testament the prayers of the righteous avail much. The righteous man's prayers. Not just prayers, the righteous man's prayers, which means what? There's a standard for your prayer life just as much as there's a standard for everything else. God is not, does not have some, you don't have him by the arm. If you pray in Jesus' name, he has to hear your prayers. So here he is, he's created a cloud saying, I'm not hearing your prayers. I'm not pardoning you. I'm not pitying you. Well, why? Because they didn't do what they needed to do. In the end, they did not trust the Lord. That through their weeping over experiencing the judgment of God, they did not truly become brokenhearted. They did not truly become contrite, that is, repentant. They truly did not debase themselves and put their mouths to the ground before him and bow the knee. No, they looked over their shoulder and trusted another nation. They were looking elsewhere for their deliverance. They knew everything here, and boy, did they know it. When we get to the last few chapters here, Jeremiah, you're going to see, they're going to make these phenomenal declarations that we go, praise the Lord, wow, I would love to have people stand up in my congregation and say this. Every preacher would want a whole congregation saying what they said to Jeremiah. 
or would we? Because five minutes later, they all did the opposite of what they said, which is more the reality, isn't it? We make these great declarations of trust and hope in God with our mouths, but where are our eyes looking? And I'll tell you where the eyes of Israel were looking, they were still looking to Egypt. They were looking to Egypt during the siege, remember? And Nebuchadnezzar's army leaves for a little while, and they say, hey, you see, Jerusalem can never fall. And Jeremiah's like, they're going to be right back. Because he's going to go down there and take care of the Egyptians and be right back, which happened. Boom. They had a little reprieve, and then wham, they were slammed by the Babylonians for the final time. And now, having fallen and having been the few poor and miserable people that are left behind, what do they do? They run back down to Egypt and think that there they can have deliverance. When God says, stay where you are. And they take and bind the prophet of God, Jeremiah, and take him as a prisoner with them, forcing him to go where he knows they're not supposed to go. So, yes, with their mouth they declared some amazing things, but their heart hadn't changed, and the rebellion was still there, and God says, stay put, and they go, because they are, look at the, verse 3, or verse 17, our eyes failed us for watching vainly for our help. They're just squinting to try to find a solution in this world. And oh, I'm so tired of Christians bending over backwards to try to find solutions to life's problems in this world. You do not find them among counselors even who call themselves Christian, among lawyers, among psychologists, among politicians. I don't care how you vote, it will not solve the problems of your life. I don't care who is running the country. It doesn't matter. Why are we looking to the nation as if that is our hope? As if there's the solution, there's the redemption, there's the place of goodness. No, that's just rebellion. It is just demonstrating that you haven't really put your trust in the Lord. And we could go on. I mean, you could name, you know, well, we put our trust in Education. No, you can't. You think that there aren't educated criminals? You don't think educated people do horrendous acts against each other? They do. It's just harder to catch them. Your bank account cannot save you. Your career choice cannot save you. Your familial relationships cannot deliver you. There is nothing of this world that can help your spiritual state to avoid the faithfulness of God to be judge. Philosophy can't do it. None of it. We are silly enough to, th we have cameras, by the way, all around the church. They can't save us. Might help us catch the perps a little bit, or at least know who they are. They're not going to deliver us. 
The locks on the doors don't do it. Why do we do those things? Because we know men are evil. That's why we have them. To try to dissuade them. We don't really are going to stop anyone that is just determined to do evil against us. And we just put locks and gates and doors and even cameras just so they can see them and go, oh, I probably find a easier target than that. We're really just displacing the evil. We're not stopping it. Ultimately, our trust is in the Lord. Supposedly. But it's not really because our eyes aren't on him. Our eyes aren't interested in obeying him. We aren't reflecting upon that truth. We are looking to the nation for our help. We're looking to the banker. We are looking to the, to the, to the politician. We are looking to all these things, to our employers. We're looking at all these other things. And, and I've, had, I've come right up against it where I have said, thus says the Lord. And they said, well, this is what my attorney said. And they are two opposite things. And now you must choose. Who will you trust? And they trusted the lawyer. And then they wondered why they broke fellowship. Why is the cloud formed between you and God? Because you spoke something with your mouth that you never backed up with your life. We get in the baptismal waters and we say, I'm going to have a new life in Christ, and we walk out of there, and sometimes before we're even dried off from it fully, we're living for ourselves, by ourselves, with our eyes set on the world. And so we know at the beginning of this what we're supposed to do. Search ourselves out, examine our ways, turn to the Lord, lift up our hearts that are broken, our hands that are open to the God of heaven, and confess we have transgressed and rebelled. But God knows whether that's genuine or not. And that distinction is there. Why didn't he pardon? Why doesn't he hear your prayers? Because he knows that your eyes are still over your shoulder looking at nations instead of at him. Looking at this world. But Jeremiah's eyes were different. And he goes into a personal description of his personal eyes. He goes from the plural to the singular in verse 48 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 48, we go from the plural, our, us, we, um, so that he associates himself with the people. And in that plurality of the people, they were still not, God wasn't hearing their prayers. In the pluralness of the community, there was no pardon. There was no pity. There was, um, there was no help. But we come to a very precious thing in the middle of all this. In verse 48, my eyes overflow with the rivers of water. My eyes, in verse 49, flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul. I'm not just crying about them. Yes, that I'm crying over, but it is penetrating my soul. My enemies, without cause, 
hunted me down. They silenced my life in the pit. They threw stones. I mean, he's describing, I call, in verse 55, on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. Remember, he was thrown in the pit. He didn't forget that. And here, in the midst of the people of God, in full rebellion, still trusting with their, with their mouth saying one thing, with their eyes showing and living another thing, an individual cries out to the Lord. And look at verse 56. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. So, God was withholding his blessing from the body. He was withholding his blessing from the community who said one thing with their mouth, but their eyes betrayed and their heart betrayed the opposite. They're really trusting in this world and the things of it. That's where their hope was. That was where their joy was. But this man, as an individual among them, was heard. God wasn't hearing the prayers of the people. There was no pity. None of their prayers came because none of them were genuine. They weren't out of a broken heart and contrite spirit. His were. And God comes in and says, you have nothing to fear. God drew near. God heard. And then God pleaded the case for his soul in verse 58 and has redeemed his life. You have frequently heard me speak of the sorry condition of the Western church. I'm not alone in that, by the way. Most of the pastors in the East part of the church, Asian church, who have been exposed to Western Christians, um, all agree. We are a sorry condition. And we would be foolish to think that didn't penetrate even this local church, the attitudes and perspectives. Um, And I can't change the whole Western church. I can barely influence this one. But perhaps one heart, one soul, break. And yes, God can preserve in the midst of judging everyone else, he can preserve. Does that mean that Jeremiah never experienced bad things? Oh, he did. He was in the pit. He's going to get drugged down to Egypt when he doesn't want to go. The Babylonians set him free and say, you can go wherever you want. The Jerusalemites say, you have to come with us. You don't have a choice. Isn't that interesting? But God says, don't be afraid. I'm on your side. I'll plead your case. I'll redeem your life. You stand for me. And even while I don't hear 
the corporate prayers, I will hear your personal prayers. Even while I'm judging my people, I will preserve you as my servant. And yeah, we're talking one out of everyone left behind. Not a lot of people by this point, but there was just one out of the entire residual community called Jerusalemites left that God was listening to his prayers. And we're going to see what he's praying later on. He, God has heard and this gives us hope that we don't have to have a church-wide revival. We don't have to have a Western church capital C revival um, for the individual to be pleasing to God. We don't need huge movements for the individual to get it right. For God to hear, draw near, plead your case, and deliver your life. You don't need a mass movement. We can have one standing in the stream against the flow, and God will notice one. I continue to be captivated by God's interest in the minority of one. God's inclination to look at the low and hear the prisoner, the one mistreated, the one whose cause was moved against unjustly, God notices. God cares. He notices the sins, but he also notices the righteous. And so, God's faithful. He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And if it was true in the days of Noah, is it true in the days of Sodom? If it was true in the days of the fall of Jerusalem and Jeremiah, it is true today. God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And though the Western church goes into the toilet of this world, let one stand and declare his truth and God will preserve him. That is the promise verse 13 of chapter 4 says because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just the one, and, and yes he saw what happened to these prophets and priests who were, were his extended family and God preserved him because he didn't go in with their sin wow God cares about one standing And he will send a couple of angels to get you and your family out if you're the one in Sodom that the Bible says it was toward his heart every day for Lot to sit in the gate and watch the wickedness of the city. Never participate in it. 
the one Rahab delivered out of Jericho with everyone that she could get packed in her house that would come. God cares about that one. And so we can make the excuse that everyone's doing it and God isn't going to hear that excuse. Well, I just went with the flow. I just, everyone was doing that and I wasn't paying attention. No, God cares about one and he calls each one to repentance. Consider your ways. Judge them, search them out. Be honest. Consider your ways. Turn to the Lord. Lift up your heart and your hands to God and say, I've transgressed, I have rebelled and my eyes will pour out and I will look for no redemption anywhere but you. This is what Jeremiah did in the pit, and God heard him and drew near. Pled his cause and delivered his life. He cares about the one. And so the calling is certainly for the church to get right with God, no doubt but we don't miss the individual calling of God on you. Who are you trusting in? Yes, we as a people need to be attentive to this, but you as an individual, it is no excuse. If all of us go the way of Beelzebub, there's no excuse for you. God calls you as the individual. Examine yourself, your ways. Turn to the Lord. Break your heart Lift up your hands, confess your sin and your rebellion that he might redeem you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your faithfulness, and Lord, we are fools if we think that that doesn't include being judge. And Lord, we acknowledge that we have frequently, I have frequently, professed to trust in you while mostly just trusting in myself or the things of this world, having my eyes over my shoulder while I think I'm walking toward you. Lord, forgive us that rebellion of that trespass of the covenant. And Lord, help us to cleanse ourselves of that, to reprioritize our lives, to seek you with all of it, to your honor, praise, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.